Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is episode 251, PAX Unplugged Hotness. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. And this is Chris. And this is Anthony. So I finally tracked all the way back from PAX Unplugged 2019, and we're back, buddy. We're back. Another episode. Yeah, all the way back. It's like an hour from your house. <laughs> it was a, it was a treacherous drive. You know, True. my car was mangled the day before the uh, convention, and you know, rental car issues and everything else. But uh, somehow I got there, and somehow I got back, and somehow I got to work today, and somehow I'm on the podcast today. So overall, it was a journey of deep and dark things. But it was generally a lot of fun. That's good. I'm glad it was fun. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I, I did none of those things. I was here with my children. We played games. We played some games. We're not going to review those games, but we played games. <laughs> well, we'll save that for the next episode. So, yes, there was a lot of packs unplugged hotness. I have to do a big shout out for everyone there, the publishers, the designers, packs unplugged. Just generally, Josh at hip city veg and just every great sport out there who made the convention fantastic all the teachers that were at the first look section all our friends the publishers the designers you know again a tremendous convention honestly my favorite convention i mean i love origins i love gen con but there's just something special about packs does everything at the right amount a good amount of vendors a good amount of gaming a good amount of entertainment and just generally tournaments. So PAX Unplugged 2019. Great job, everyone. Thank you so much. 
And, you know, we have a lot to talk about for the episode. We're going to recap all of the hot games. So probably you've seen all of the hot games pop up on Board Game Geek. And I'm going to give you an inside look into the games, how they played, what was great, what was not great, and what you might want to pick up for those holiday season last minute gifts. All right, Anthony, until we get into all of that kind of fun stuff, what's going on with BGA? Yeah, it is that time of year. We are getting to the end of uh, December, and that means we got awards to give out. We got a year in review to run through. And so this year, we're going to do a couple special things. So next week, we're going to have, I mean, everybody else is doing it. So really, it isn't like some unique thing I came up with. It's just on all the websites. And I was like, that's a cool idea. So we're going to do our games of the decade, our, our best board games by year across the last 10 years. And so that's going to be a fun one. We're putting that together for you guys. And then the week after that, the very, very end of the year, we're going to do the BGA Awards for 2019. So those will be the top board games from the entire year. And this year, we're going to do a little bit different. We're going to put polls up on the uh, BGA Facebook page so that you guys can vote and help us figure out what the best games of the year are. So we're going to seed those with some categories and a few nominations. You'll be able to add nominations to the list if you feel like anything's glaringly missing and then vote on what you think should be on that final list, which we will then choose uh, the winners from. So that'll be the very end of the year coming out right after Christmas before the New Year's. And uh, yeah, so look out for those two special episodes. And then, of course, in the new year, we'll have all the fun stuff we do at the start off the year, like our year in review and our predictions. Yeah, there's going to be so much great stuff and it's going to come fast, especially with the holidays right around the corner. So be sure to check out all our social media so you can keep up to date. Not to mention our BoardGamersAnonymous.com. The webpage itself has a ridiculous amount of content. So if you only listen to the podcast, you are missing out. There's a tremendous number of articles up there. Obviously, all of the links for every night's game night, all the links from the past episodes of Board Gamers Anonymous, a million different ways to contact us, a million different ways to get information about the new and the greatest in board gaming. So check the website out. You're going to love it. We're also on YouTube. So if for some reason, that is the best way for you to listen to podcasts, maybe at work or at the gym. Definitely check that out. And if you do have an opportunity and you want to expand more of your Board Gamers Anonymous content, check us out on patreon.com slash BGA. We would love to have you as a patron. We would love to have you in our Slack group, and we'd love to have you listen to more of our episodes. We have special episodes that come out every month, and we have a pretty big backlog these days. I know we recently dropped one in the feed, so definitely jump back and check that one out if you haven't got a chance. And we want to let you know that we are, again, so appreciative of you for listening. We had a big turnout at our PAX Unplugged meetup. Huge number of people. We filled out the place. It was really great to see everyone there and really great to play games with people. So, you know, really a fantastic time overall. But let's get into the episode. So, Anthony, what's our question of the week? All right, question of the week this week. If you could change how you collected when you first got into board games, what would you change? So obviously everybody has like a certain approach when they first start collecting. For me, I was actually very slow, just budgetarily. I wasn't sure what I wanted. And I bought some very basic stuff and some very not basic stuff and eventually figured out what I actually liked. Some people go all in and immediately spend thousands of dollars, <laughs> don't know what games they like, and other people don't buy anything and just kind of leech off their friends for a while until they're sure what they like, which 
it's probably the best way to do it. But <laughs> but I asked everybody else and got some good answers. So Tim said he's just been at it for a few years, but he's been enjoying the journey and wouldn't change his approach. He buys a variety and tries different mechanics. He tries to read reviews and watch how to play, form a wish list and track sales. And then he sells stuff if he's not enjoying a game after a couple of plays and puts money towards another game. So again, there's the right way to do it. <laughs> and Vinny mentions he bought games for the theme back then. So he spent a lot of money on bad games with a cool skin. Much more selective these days. Tommy says most of my games would have to have a solo variant or be two-player only. Uh, mostly plays multiplayer, but if a game has no solo variant, it stands a high probability of only being played once or twice. So over the last two years, he's curated 90% of his collection to meet these requirements. So I think there's a lot in all of that. Uh, some people mention their Kickstarter habits, not backing everything they see. Other people mention actually getting more gateway games because they tend to play more games with their family than they do with their game group. I think for me, it would have been a combination of things. One, more gateway games. So I could have gotten more people in my life into games who are not. I now own a bunch of those, but... I just didn't have them early on. Two would have been not buying so many miniatures games because back then I was like, Toy Factor, woo! I don't play any of those and most of them are gone now. <laughs> so, And then three, I didn't really get into the Kickstarter craze too quickly, but once I did, I went way all in and that ended up being a big chunk of my early collection that I don't own any of those games anymore because none of them are very good. Yeah, I guess for me, one of the opposite lessons I learned, Anthony, from you is not to go with gateway games, I guess in part because one of the most important things to learn about board gaming is who are you playing games with? So I think early on, I did buy a lot of games that I thought my family would play. And over time, I've kind of bought some games I thought my family would play. But for many reasons, there were some times and there were some games that they were either willing to play or able to play. But generally, if you want to play something that you're going to enjoy you got to find the right group for that. So I think identifying what games you love and then finding the group or the people who are interested in playing that is ideal because if you're not having fun, while it's great to bring new people to the table and expose people to games, you, it's got to be still something that you enjoy playing and not just, well, this is just a thing I think you'll play and then they don't play it and then it's on your shelf and you're not playing it either. I guess also... As you mentioned, Kickstarter especially had a, such a big impact on board gaming, and there was always a lot of deals and a lot of really interesting extras. And I think in particular, the completionists, like having to own every piece of a board game that ever came out, owning every card, owning every miniature, and then only later coming to realize that either A, you never got a chance to really play with those things, or B, they were so broken that what was the point anyway? And I guess I'll throw in C, which is that one promo sometimes was so expensive that it was like 15% or 20% of the game itself, at least cost-wise. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just like, yeah, I got that card. It was, you know, 10 bucks. That one card. Yay. For that, <laughs> for that game I paid 35 bucks for. That goes into a deck of like 40 cards. So, uh, but yeah. So the completionist thing, the the right group, the right game kind of situation is obviously ideal. And obviously, you know, back in the day, there wasn't so much media out there. So 
finding out what games are great and what games are great for me probably would have saved me a lot of time and money despite the big, big discounts. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think it's just some of that stuff I bought. Like, I have a copy of Dreadfleet in my closet somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's six years old. I've never played it. I painted half of it, but yeah. Uh, early think, gamer me was a dumb me. <laughs> and I think a lot of it's like a lot of psychological kind of stuff going on there. It's like, this game is 60% off. I would be stupid not to buy it. And you're like, <laughs> Like, yeah, because a game is a game is a game. And if it's a 60% off game, clearly you've done something incredibly right in your life only to realize that, yeah, but it's still $40 and still sitting on the shelf and still not getting played. So (laughs) it's not it's not that it's not $60 off, but it's more along the lines of that it's $40 for the game. So, yeah, that tends to be a thing. So, yep. All right. So that's everything that's going on with our listeners. All right, Anthony, while I was at PAX, you were playing at home. Let me know what your acquisition disorders are. Yeah. I mean, my big acquisition disorder this week is actually from PAX because this was like the one big game announced at the convention. And it's a biggie. It is the sequel to the number one game of all time on BGG. It's Frosthaven. So, I mean, if you're listening to this, you probably already know about this. It's number one on the BGG hotness. It was all over the what what passes for board game media. But it's it's exciting for a couple of reasons. One, uh, Gloomhaven is amazing. It's in my top 100. It's a fantastic game. I've not gotten anywhere close to playing through it. So I don't know that I'll necessarily even get Frosthaven right away. It's just some of the stuff they've described in the game sounds really cool. It is a whole new adventure in the same world. So now you're like up in the north, it's snowy, it's icy, you get the idea, it's Frosthaven, right? There's 100 new scenarios, there's three new races, 16 new characters, 20 new enemies, hundreds of new items. And while it does kind of the core mechanisms of Gloomhaven in place, it also adds a bunch of other stuff. So you have like mysteries to solve now. It's not all combat, which I think is like one of the things that started to grate on me a little bit about the game and the reason I never finished it is because at a certain point, it gets a little repetitive. It is just that combat puzzle over and over again. I love the combat puzzle, but I don't want to play it 100 times consecutively, right? So now we've got like mysteries, puzzles, you've got seasonal events, you've got players actually expanding the village and stuff, adding buildings and all that. So it seems pretty cool. I know you had like a similar issue with the the combat getting kind of samey, right? Yeah, and that's what really bogs it down for me. It was such a brilliant construction of a game, and thematically, it just hit every note. But the fact that you were doing a lot of the same things all the time, whether it was, you know, mash out a lot of the creatures, or just the idea that you're just playing cards over and over again. And if you're not swapping out your characters, which sometimes just doesn't happen because of random reasons, you don't go to the right place, or you don't get the right thing then you're not really experiencing new mechanics. So I like the idea from what I hear. And a friend of mine got a chance to actually play at least at least one round of the, you know, Frosthaven. And was mentioning that it's a little more complex and the missions are more complex. So a lot more complexity, which is good because, you know, when you're playing a game for that long and that many years, so to speak, at least in game time, uh, it's something that you want to be challenged with and something that you want to learn. I mean, after a couple of games, you're like, I play this card, I play this card, I play this card. And then I pick my cards up and I play this card, this card, this card. And it, it shouldn't come down to being a programming game. 
So I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, Isaac giving us a more challenging experience. Yeah, you know, it seems really cool. And it's, I obviously needed to see more about it. And it doesn't come out for another year and a half. So I have plenty of time to maybe catch up on Gloomhaven and the expansion and the light version coming out next year. I'm never going to play all this content, but <laughs> it looks and cool. That's what, and that's what's really funny to see, at least from my point of view, is I'm really wondering where people's appetite is for this game and have they had enough do they really want more and how this kickstarter is going to run are we are we looking at multiple reprints again are we looking at massive stretch goals that hit or miss i think this is just going to be a fascinating kickstarter just overall as far as the market's concerned because things have sped up dramatically since gloomhaven came out yeah, that's a good point. All right, so that's everything that's going on with our acquisition disorders. Anthony, let's get on to the games that hit your table this week. Yeah, so uh, again, I was not at a convention, so this is a game I played previous to that. But it is relatively new. It is Azul Summer Pavilion. This is the third edition of Azul from Michael Kiesling. And it does the same thing State of Glass of Sintra did, and it kind of remixes the basic Azul formula. So in this one, you have these several different flower shaped things and now the azul tiles are diamonds instead of squares so that's kind of cool and during on your turn you're going to do the same thing you do in azul there'll be the the central um selection area with the factories you choose all of one color you dump the rest into the middle if you take from the middle first you become first player you lose points for however many tiles you take there are now wild tiles so if there's a wild color in whatever you pull you can take one of those wild tiles um with you and what you're trying to do is just collect as many of these tiles as you can during this whole drafting period and then at the end of it you take turns placing those tiles onto your personal player board and there are several things you're trying to do here so you have one different flower shaped thing for each of the six colors and they're numbered one through six so you need to spend that many tiles to place one tile there so if you want to fill the one green you place just a green tile there done but if you want to fill the six green then you need six green tiles or a combination of six green and wild tiles you place one there you discard the rest you have to have at least one of the color that's being used to use a wild you score points based on how many tiles are adjacent to that one you just placed so if you place the one that's a point you place the six next to it that's now two points you place the five next to that that's now three points etc etc going on right if you enclose certain areas by building these tiles on different flowers, then you get bonuses from the central board where there are several different tiles have been drawn. Uh, so it, there's like the pillars in the middle, they'll give you one. There's pillars and statues on the side that give you two. And then if you surround the windows on the very outside, which is the fives and sixes, you get three tiles for free from the middle, which is really cool. You kind of like chain all this stuff together and try to get new tiles to add to your to your mat. The game plays about the same length. It's about the same complexity, but it manages to mix it up in a way that makes it feel somehow new and fresh and interesting. And I was really impressed with it. I, I know last year when uh, Stained Glass of Sintra came out, I said, this is way better than Azul. This is the version I want to play. This is the version I prefer. And I think now if I was going to rank them, this one would be maybe tied with that one because it does a lot of interesting, cool things, but in a slightly different way. And it's still more engaging to me than vanilla Azul. So I have all three of these now, and I'm actually happy to own all three. I don't know how realistic that is for a lot of other people, but 
I, I do like all three and I feel like they would fit in different situations. So yeah, I get it's Azul. It's still a buy for me. If you don't own any Azuls and you have a chance to pick up Summer Pavilion, buy it. If you already own one of them, maybe give it a play first and, and see where it fits in your collection. Yeah, they had this at PAX and it was constantly being played. I had a couple of friends who actually got a chance to play it and they liked it quite a bit. In fact, some of them liked it better than the other two, which I was surprised at because I was wondering at some point if are we looking at a redundant mechanic and the pieces didn't look better. I mean, I think the glass version looks better than the original Zool. Not radically better, but looks better and I, and I enjoyed it a little bit more. So I'm interested to play in this. Uh, Again, I'm not sure if my collection needs all three since I do have the second one. And I did. And I and I believe I heard that they are reprinting Azul with a double matte kind of board. So it's going to be an actually uh, upgraded version. I think it's an upgrade. It's a separate upgrade you can buy like overlays to put on top of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But that's only for the base game, which is interesting. I guess that one still sells the most. Yeah, maybe we'll see other versions kind of get upgraded as well. Maybe it'll be a situation like with Century and the uh, Gollum edition where they just kind of go back and like, this still sells. Let's just upgrade it a bit and people will buy more of it. So, yeah, that seems to still be a thing. All right, so that's everything that's in Anthony's table. Let's get on to the feature review. So for the feature review this week, I am talking about PAX Unplugged 2019. And I just want to go quickly through the hotness. You did not have to be at PAX or play the games at PAX. I'm going to give you the inside dope about all of the great stuff that was at PAX. So again, if you're looking at something for the holiday season or you want to see what games you should sit down and play, this should be a pretty good guide, at least hotness wise and some buy plays dodge kind of situation. All right, so let's get started. So first off, I saw Mega City Oceana. It was an interesting kind of colorful game. Nothing too punchy as far as that's concerned. But, you know, it's out there if you're looking to sit down and play something. Not a lot of hype or interest in the game. On Mars was at PAX Unplugged. I got to play maybe a third to a half of the game. I'm actually getting this through Kickstarter. And I did enjoy the thematic play as far as there are certain actions you could do in space. There's certain actions you could do at Mars, and there is a shuttle mechanic that goes back and forth, so you have to make the decision if you actually want to ride back and forth, and if you do, you get a bonus. Player order matters huge in this game, and I enjoyed it, so I recommend it at least as a play at this point, and I'll come back to it when I actually get it to the table more often. Predaporta was available. It was the basic kind of version of the game. Super, super, almost painfully colorful game that was out there. A lot of people were playing it, and it looks like something that's worth sitting down for. We also got to take a look at Chocolate Factory. This was a game that was not getting a lot of love, but there were some people definitely championing the cause, some really nice pieces to it, and some great theming that you don't typically see in games. Queen Games had Runestones. Now, this was a very colorful game, as Queen often does, beautiful productions, And a lot of nice colorful pieces in there. The runes, of course. Cards and some dice rolling and basically some tableau building. I didn't get a chance to play it, but it was definitely something that I was looking forward to playing and definitely sitting down with in the future. City Skylines was out there as well. This was one of our acquisition disorders in the past. This is based on the video game. You're building up the city. 
I recently got a chance to pick up a copy of this, so we will look at this at a future review. A lot of great games like that. Sanctum, this whole kind of fighting the evil thing from, from CGE games, which is a little of a departure. They they have done Dungeon Lords and Dungeon Pets, so the fantasy theme is not too crazy for them. But this is more of an Amerithrash type of game. It was one of the big promoted games of the con. Didn't get a chance to sit down and play this, but if you're into that kind of fantasy theme, that might be a great game for you. There were a lot of games from the Japanese toy market at the fair. I didn't get a chance to play any of them, unfortunately. It seems like there was only one person at the convention who knew how to play them, and he was few and far between as far as the convention was going. So it was a little disappointing. I sat around a bit, but eh, never got a chance to get to the table. Tapestry was there, so Stonemaier was well represented. And obviously, great production here. People were playing it around the clock, and it seemed to be something of great interest. Uh, Fowers had a sabotage game. It was basically a sonar version with a little bit of battleship. So basically, you set up your board with all these different kind of contraptions, and you try to sneak into the other side and see where they're placing their equipment. This was definitely the looker of the con. It had these really nice chunky pieces, beautiful artwork. Once again, probably not a great game for you know a con type of experience just because it was a little too big and a little bit loud. But, you know, if you enjoy that type of game, it's definitely something you should sit down. Trismegistus was there, and it was always nice to see. I was like, hey, that's one of the games I actually know how to play. And I actually helped a couple of gamers get through at least the initial kind of drudgery of that rule book. It was getting a lot of play out there, and we already reviewed it. So jump back and find out more about that really interesting game. I got a chance to play Taramara, actually, with our friend Tim. And he's actually the designer of Archmage and its recent expansion. And it was okay. It has a fantastic pedigree. This came out from Quinn Games. It was basically a worker placement game, and it was like prehistoric kind of history, and as you move down the board to get the better actions, it took longer for you to recover your people, which, you know, had some thematic flavor to it, but it was a very dry and abstract type of game. So maybe a play if you really can't find something else but you know tim made it a great time so i'd recommend at least if you get a chance to play with tim aquatica was another game that was getting a lot of attention fantastic artwork there beautiful board great creatures out there didn't get a chance to play it myself but it looked like something that was definitely worth to sit down and play echoes first continent i actually got a copy of this from aeg and i'll be reviewing this later but think of it as augustus uh, you know, where you actually were able to use a bingo mechanic as being able to kind of build up your Roman civilization. Well, here again, you're using a bingo mechanic to build up the first continent. Kalis was there, was not getting a lot of love. It's a little bit of a heavy game. The new reprint looks great, and I highly recommend picking that one up because I think it's something that most people, if they give it a chance, will actually love. They did have multiple copies of The Magnificent, so I personally try to get down to the table there. Did not get a chance. A lot of people enjoyed it. I'm still on the fence if I want to sit down and play this. It looked a little busy as far as I was concerned, but, you know, it's gotten a lot of press. It's gotten a lot of buzz, and it seems to have a lot of interesting, you know, mechanics, so to speak, 
Anthony previously reviewed that, so check back on his review. On the Underground was a, a little kind of really fun little game that was out there. Got a little love here and there. There was Pictures, which was a game of selecting pictures and building up different structures. So that's always fun to see. And I, I guess what really kind of stood out for me again was that there were so many different types of games this year. I mean, obviously, as I mentioned previously, there was all of these different Japanese games that were out there. Unfortunately, they didn't have teachers for it, so to speak. I think that kind of held things back. They also had Marco Polo 2, which was probably the game that got the most play throughout the convention. There was always somebody at the table for that. We've already played it, and we will talk about that on a future review. But, you know, let me give you a little insight. Definitely sit down and play it, especially if you like Marco Polo. I got to play the Kickstarter, or I think it's a final production uh, version of the Tokaido Spiritual Successor, and it's fine. It's basically Tokaido, and it's nothing really more than that. Also, one of the big games was the Martin Wallace game, Nancy Narking. Uh, a couple of friends of mine got a chance to play the game and really enjoyed it. Didn't look like much, but it was something that was definitely getting some play. Carousel? was a nice game out there with a really beautiful production of actually building up that carousel. I got a chance to play Old Masters, which was a painting game I really enjoyed. It was a little bit lighter. Basically, it had this kind of like, almost I wouldn't say a rondelle effect so much because basically it had this like lazy Susan in the middle where things moved and you picked up paint and you painted pictures. Nothing really crazy different, but it was a nice production. Uh, Stronghold game had fast sloths i have to say that a little bit slower and basically it's the pick up and deliver game of sloths uh, a lot of people have fun with this game especially the, the oddness of it all uh bus from capstone games was probably getting the most attention from the heavy gamers throughout the con as anthony mentioned and already reviewed it's beautiful production and great splatter game that's back out there on the table there was a little abstract game called no return that had a lot of big attention, really nice little chunky, you know, abstract pieces. Definitely something to take a look at. It's a Wonderful World was a Kickstarter that I kind of passed up on. It's a decently nice little game. It's kind of a lighter version of Seven Wonders. Basically, you're building up a tableau. The tableau produces these different colored resources. And there are cards in the game that give you bonuses and finally will score you victory points. It's quick, it's simple. If you played Seven Wonders, you are probably way overqualified to play It's a Wonderful World, but it's a nice little game, and I definitely recommend to play on that. Deep Blue Ocean got a lot of attention. There was a lot of really kind of buzz around the game, had some really great artwork and some really nice pieces. Didn't get a chance to sit down with it myself, but nonetheless, it was something interesting. Era of Tribes was out there. It was this beautiful-looking civilization game with like seemed like endless numbers of pieces a bunch of people I know played it and kind of recommended it as a dodge. They really just didn't feel like it was kind of finished as far as that concerned. Fujikoro was a game that I talked about in Acquisition Disorder way back when. This was all about this kind of volcano kind of exploding and you are trying to do your best to kind of save all the relics as possible but also survive. Beautiful, beautiful production. Didn't get a chance to play it myself, but a lot of people did enjoy the game. Cooper Island was also there from Capstone Games. I should mention Capstone Games sponsored the First Look section. They did a great job there. Thank you so much, Clay, and everybody else there. What a fun time in the First Look section. Cooper Island was getting a lot of buzz. Didn't get a chance to sit down myself with it, 
but hope to get it for a future review. Masters of Renaissance. This is a short, quick, and a little bit of an odd version of Lorenzo Menefico. You're basically moving marbles to take resources to complete the cards in Lorenzo. You have your two leader cards, and that's pretty much it. It plays in about 40 minutes, and despite it being a little odd, little knockoff of a much better game, it's probably something I would still play, to be honest with you. It was kind of fun and quick as far as that's concerned. There was Valley of the Kings from Haba Games. And even though this is mostly a kid's game, I, I can tell you there was a line of adults looking to play it. It's all about Vikings and giant barrels and knocking things over. I got a chance to play Paranormal Detectives. This is a mix between Mysterium and, I don't know, a social deduction game where you're also doing some oddities where you're bending up pipe cleaners and you are trying to give clues in a whole number of different ways. It's fine. I don't think I will come back to it. I'm going to probably give it a dodge. But if you were absolutely committed to what is a wonderful production and love deduction games and want to get something new to the table, it wasn't bad. It was just the final murder scenarios were so super elaborate that it almost seemed silly in the end. I got a chance to play Fultilla, which was a game that was on my acquisition disorder. This was a production from WizKids Games. I didn't get to play a full game of this. Probably about, I would say, maybe a third to halfway through the game. It had some really interesting mechanics, very similar to Concordia, but you're also building up the board as you go. It had this really interesting mechanic where you either stayed at ocean level or you jumped up to sky level. It's definitely worth a play, but once again, I think I have to play out a full version of it to give a final review just because... There were a lot of cards that you, you're able to pick up in like a, in a deck builder situations that might really open the game up a lot more. Expeditions in New Dale was there. Didn't get a chance to play it, but looked very interesting. And there was just a lot of generally good games. I mean, it was overall a great convention. I enjoyed playing so many games with people out there. The first look section, as always, is the place to be. You definitely want to check those games out. And specifically, I got a chance to play Welcome to new vegas this was a new version a upgraded a little more complex version of welcome to so basically you're building up vegas it has some interesting mechanics you're running a limo around you're building up these different hotels it was a lot of fun got a chance to play a full version of that it's still a little too complex for what it is but it's still fantastic especially if you like welcome to so that was my PAX experience. Overall, it was a great experience. So glad to have everyone there. So glad to enjoy the convention. And, you know, so glad to be back there next year. I think actually, in fact, the convention is the week before Thanksgiving. So they're going back to their original first year date. So that means that you can actually come out there then, right, Anthony? Yeah. Yeah. This weekend sucked. <laughs> timing wise it's just it's too close to christmas it's, it's such a hard time like i i just couldn't travel but mid-november i can and i will excellent so until next year this is chris and this is anthony and we'll save you a seat at pax 2020
Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. 